Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this, the first of two special holiday episodes, we celebrate one of the most wonderful things about the holiday season, the way people come together to share stories. We'll journey to Connecticut's quiet corner, where at a little restaurant on the road between Lebanon and Columbia, residents of those two towns came together one night in early November to share soup, dessert, and stories. I was asked to emcee this event, and it was truly a magic evening, one of the best I've had as state historian. That night, I saw two communities come together as one family to share some of the most interesting and surprising stories you could ever imagine, and I couldn't wait to share them with you on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. You know, three years ago, I came back to Columbia, uh, the place I always wanted to live, in the house I always wanted to own. And I have found since I got here that people east of the river are the best storytellers in Connecticut. We're good. We're good. I don't know if it's because AT&T is so spotty out in the country. <laughs> But people are still talking to each other, and that's just wonderful. I also think it's great that Lebanon and Columbia are doing this together, that, uh, you know, we, are, we started out together in 1716 when the Ecclesiastical Society was formed in North Lebanon. We stayed together until 1804. Then we, we went our separate ways as towns, Fifty years ago, each town formed a historical society, and now we are together again celebrating this event tonight and another event and the 50th anniversary of both societies. I see lots of people from both towns here, or our one old town here, and I thought tonight we could alternate. Uh, let's see how this works. We're going to play off storytelling from Columbia versus Lebanon, right? We're, we're going to alternate stories. The grand prize is a great big dollop of whipped cream from Alicia Lamb. Maybe with some apple crisp then if there's any left. There are no rules about storytelling tonight. Uh, you don't ha- it doesn't have to be clever, it doesn't have to be great, it doesn't have to be thought out. It has to be a real story from the heart. And I'm going to start with a story from my heart. I didn't come to live in Colombia till three years ago. I was raised in Europe. My dad was from Colombia. He was in the Air Force, and he was over there after the war. I was born there. We lived there until the early 60s, but every summer we would come back to my grandfather's house on Columbia Lake. Now, Lebanon has its green, Columbia has the lake, and for me, America was always my grandfather's three cottages on Columbia Lake. So, years ago, I wrote this song that I feel like maybe the rest of my life has been proving true. 
There's a place in New England Not far from the ocean At the foot of the mountains Beside a small lake With three wooden houses And an old water pump That shows life is the people And the good times they make It was my grandfather's house The joy of my childhood And his father's home before him It was there I would laugh Jumping into the water And there he would play on that old violin My father and mother were lovers then And I was a sign of their joy Sometimes I think I'd give it all back To go back to when I was my grandfather's grandest boy With one old log cabin He'd rent to the tourists Who'd come down from Hartford in the summertime And a second old shingle reserved for Judge Harvey I always thought he was a good friend of mine And I thought the gold in the rocks was real treasure As it shimmered and shined in the icy cold lake And the leaky old rowboat that took on the water Was a real Spanish galleon in the raids we wouldn't make My father and mother were lovers then And I was a sign of their joy Sometimes I think I'd give it all back to go back to when I was my grandfather's grandest boy My grandfather woke up at six every morning He made his own coffee then sat down to drink in the chair by the sofa that folded into my bed He'd tug at my pillow and he'd give me a wink Then while the others lay sleeping He made toast and I drank from his cup And even at sixty I still smell the coffee and remember the joys of that old waking up. My father and mother were lovers then, and I was a sign of their joy. Sometimes I think I'd give it all back to go back to when. I was my grandfather's grandest boy My grandfather died at the end of the 60s An old man of 90, but still on his own His sons and his daughters could not get together They decided to sell off his home now the cottages are old and run down And my grandfather sleeps on the hill in the town 
Sometimes I wonder if he ever knew that if he loved that old place, God, I loved you too. My father and mother were lovers then. Now I'm all that's left of their joy. But sometimes I know I'd give it all back to go back to when I was my grandfather's grandest boy. So, that's my story. Now, your story doesn't have to be about Columbia or about Lebanon. It can be about anything you want it to be. It can be a poem. It can be a song. If you brought a pad of paper, you can draw us a cartoon. <laughs> I need a brave person from Lebanon. Come on. What's your name? Marge Nichols. Marge Nichols is going to be, I'm so proud of you, our first storyteller from Lebanon. You come sit here. I'm a relative newcomer in town. I've only been here 21 years. I came from Newington up in the Hartford area. And uh, back in 1999, I went to uh, a town hall meeting. Joyce Okanuk was the uh, first selectman at the time. And during that meeting at the Lyman High School, she pulled out some articles that a man had sent to her saying that he wanted to change the name of a street in town from Moeen Street, and he wanted to change the name to Moeen Street with two O's. He was probably in his 70s when he wrote this, and he said that when he was a boy, he went to the camp on Red Cedar Lake, which was a boys' camp. Anyway, she read all this information out to us at the town hall, and I was so taken by his story that I, I contacted the town hall later and I asked, could I have copies of all that stuff that he sent? Uh, and, she, and they very kindly sent me a big, thick packet of all his articles that he sent about that camp, boys' camp, which meant a lot to him. <clears throat> he was from New York, and many boys from New York and Jer New Jersey would come up and spend all summer, like six weeks or so, at that camp. And it meant so much to him that he also wrote to the state of Connecticut because... The whole eastern shore of Red Cedar Lake is a state park, and it was called Red Cedar Lake State Park. And he asked if the state would change the name to Moeen State Park. The name of Moeen was the name of the camp, the boys' camp. It means brown bear. He says it meant brown bear in an Indian language. So the state of Connecticut did indeed change the name of the state park to Moeen State Park, and the town changed the name of the street from Moeen to Moeen Street. Well, that was in 1999. Oh, also at the camp, the fellow who ran the camp, his name is Cap Gurdon, and he apparently invented the snorkel right in those waters. Uh, he never did get a patent for it, so he never got the credit uh, at all, but he claims that the, the snorkel was invented right at Red Cedar Lake in Lebanon. Also, two of the boys who went to that camp included Eric Land of the Polaroid Land camera, who developed the Polaroid Land camera, or Edward, Edwin Land, I think, and also Edward Land, thank you, and also Yip Harburg, 
who wrote all the lyrics to the songs in the Judy Garland movie, The Wizard of Oz. And he also wrote the song from the Depression, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? And he went to that camp when he was a boy. Well, three years later, 2002, some friends of mine called me up one day and said, let's go for a walk. Now, there's a beautiful walk around Red Cedar Lake. It's about three miles. And uh, so they came over, and, and we, we started walking off through the cottages, and then there's a trail that picks up through on the other side through the laurel bushes, and then through the old camp. You can still see ruins in the, in the woods there. You can see there are four field stone chimneys that still stick up in the, in the woods. And in, when I first moved to Lebanon, you could still see the, the old basketball court and the tennis court. Now it's all covered up with leaves, and trees are growing through it. And there are many other uh, foundations as well that are still visible. Oh, before we started on our walk, however, there were four people that arrived, and they were dressed very fancy, a little too fancy for hiking in the woods, two uh, couples. So I walked over toward them, and I said, um, you know, hi, how are you doing? And they said, um, do you know why you're here? And I said, well, we're going for a walk. He turned out to be that man who wrote to the town of Lebanon. He was here because... He had, they had just put up a sign on the dam at the lake there with a paragraph that he had written about the wonderful days he had spent at that camp, and he was there to, to see it. They had driven up all the way from New York. They were only there one half hour, and I was there at the same window that they were there, and I got to meet him, and I, he was so excited because I knew all his stories, and uh, he just was so amazed, and so it was just fate that, I got to meet this guy. It was really, that was cool. Very nice. Wow. Who would have thought there were all these famous people who made all these great things who came out of Lebanon and Colombia? It's awesome. Okay, Colombia, the gauntlet is down. Hail, Colombia, who's going to volunteer? All right, Andrea Stannard. These are just vignettes about growing up in Colombia, and some of you may have had similar experiences in Lebanon. Um, it, it seems that when I was growing up, there were very few people in town compared to today. Now there are over 5,000 in, in Colombia. I think probably in the early 50s, there were closer to 500. I, I don't know the exact number, but course, being a small town, um, and a lot of us were related to each other. So I have memories of, it seemed as though everybody's mother was everybody else's mother. There, there was no feeling uh, of being afraid to walk out or to go visiting. We did a lot of visiting. I recall uh, my grandmother taking us up to the house by the dam where Cousin May lived. Everybody was uncle somebody or cousin somebody, that kind of thing. And I can remember going to that one house, and they didn't have indoor plumbing. And I was very little, and I always got very nervous when Grandma Stannard wanted to go take us on a walk up to Cousin May's because I was always afraid that I was going to have to use the outhouse and, and that I'd fall in. You know, when you're little, you have that, you have that feeling that, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I remember that. I remember going to Madison Woodard's house regularly because he helped myself and a friend of mine with stamp collecting. 
and Madison is Walt's grandfather. And I still have stamps that Madison gave me. He was very interested in helping my girlfriend and myself with that hobby. I also remember my uncle Ray Lyman, who was a veteran of World War I, who became uh, the postmaster and delivered mail in Columbia. And at that time, my family was living on Whitney Road. And there was a hill that worked down to our house. And we could walk up to the top of the hill and wait for Uncle Ray, who came along delivering mail to all of the mailboxes. And Uncle Ray would stop at the top of the hill. And if we wanted to, he'd let us jump on the running board and ride down to our mailbox. I also remember there was a family called the Letterers who lived, I think, up on West Street, which would have been, I'd say, a couple of miles from my grandfather's house on Route 87. They had a donkey. We kids called the donkey Letterer. And the donkey, every once in a while, would get out and wind up down at my grandfather's house. And then somebody would have to take him back up to West Street. I have a feeling that the reason that Letterer came down to my grandfather's house is that I have a feeling that my grandfather gave him some beer when he showed up. <laughs> because because my, fa- my grandfather, Carl Stotenfeld, was, was a very friendly, outgoing kind of guy. And when these town or state crews came by to repave the road, he'd go up and he'd say, come on in, and he'd, he'd have the crew come down in, into his house, and he'd give them some beer, uh, and they'd, they'd talk a while, have a good time, and in return, the town crews would pave the apron of Grandpa's driveway. So, and, and he was, and, and Grandpa was a, a town constable and a town assessor. So those are all just vignettes that I remember from growing up in, in Columbia. That's it. <laughs> Come on, Lebanon. Can you beat the town that feeds its donkeys beer? Huh? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, here comes the gunner. Time limit, time limit. (laughs) I just wanted to tell one little story tonight that kind of goes with Columbia and Lebanon. In 1947, after this war, we lived in Oceanside, Long Island. My father was working in New York in the insurance industry, and uh, he was getting ready to go on a train one morning to get into Long Island, and he thought, I'm not doing this the rest of my life. So he decides he's going to go to Connecticut and be a chicken farmer, and I don't think he ever had a chicken. But anyway, we ended up moving to Lebanon in 1947. He had found a place in Woodstock, one in, in Scotland, and he, we ended up in Lebanon on Cook Hill Road. Uh, we had an uncle in Columbia, so we had a little connection. <laughs> and to get to Willimannock, we used to go down Cook Hill Road to 87 to Columbia Center, and then all the way to Willimannock that way. We didn't know Cook Hill Road went right into Willimannock. <laughs> <laughs> so the first family we met was the Stebna family who owned the farm next to us, and they're the most wonderful people there's only one left now. They were just wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, I remember that my uh, mother saw Martha Stebner one day, and she's talking a little bit, and she said, well, I have a couple of boys. And Martha always kidded about, she said, well, bring your boys up. Well, Martha thought we were big boys, but we were only like three and four years old. <laughs> and Martha kidded till she passed that uh, uh, 
when we got up there, said, these are the boys? <laughs> but it was just a farm we grew up on, and uh, I wanted to make it as quick as I can because I know Rick has his roll of duct tape with him. <laughs> this, kinda, this story goes with Columbia and Lebanon. And fortunately, we've got one of the family members, Judy, here with us tonight, Judy Zegda. And uh, when we moved to the farm there, her father and her grandfather had just purchased about 60 acres of the farm that we ended up with, which to this day I wish he hadn't done because we would have had a bigger farm. Her dad rented our farm, and he kept heifers there that we took care of, and then he cut the hay. They had, her dad had farm oil tractors, and they'd come over and do the haying. It probably lasted a week in those days. And just to show you how farming has changed, her grandfather and Mr. Squires, who I believe owned the little store, they used to come over after supper with size and cut around the stone walls. And, of course, we had huge stones like they pulled out over the years. In the middle of the fields, they'd cut around those. They'd trim everything perfect after supper. Anyway, they had these farm oil tractors. Well, Bill Bender was just a young fellow then. I think it was before he even went in the Army. My brother Pete and I were probably six and seven years old. And it didn't take, if anybody knows about farm oil tractors, you don't need a key to start them. And we learned on pretty quick that how we could start those tractors. So, of course, as soon as Joe, your dad, and Bill Bend and whoever else was helping left, my brother and I would go right up to those tractors. There were two of them there. We'd get on and we'd remember where they were exactly, where the wheel treads, where everything was. Because, boy, Joe, we're putting this over on Joe. So we'd pull the, pull the uh, switch out and hit the button, and away we'd go. We'd drive all over the farm. <laughs> drive all over. We'd get back, and we'd get in exactly where we were positioned, and we'd remember what Geary had him in, and boy, we had it made. We were fooling her father, and we were so proud of that. But as time went on, years went on, it ended up that her brother Ronnie took the farm over. I ended up joining an equipment business in Franklin, and her dad, Joe, used to come in to get parts. Matter of fact, my father had taken movies of him with a brand new uh, tractor that he had and a baler coming around with it. And anyway, Joe would come in, and I said, you know, I brought it in, I showed him the tape, which he really liked the, and I said, you know, Joe, I've got a confession to make. I said, I felt guilty for years. And what's that? I said, my brother and I used to drive your tractors all over the farm when you weren't there. <laughs> And, and you never knew about it. And uh, I said, I just feel it's time to fess up. I'll never forget. Her father looked at me and said, Ed, do you really think that if I would leave those tractors with two young boys and not think that you'd be driving them all over the farm? He knew it all the time. And here my brother and I were guilty for years. I'm talking years. And, and he knew it the whole time. That he knew darn well we'd be on those tractors running them around. But that's kind of a, a Columbia and, and, and Lebanon story. So, but, Good job, Ed. Good but job. I would like to just do one more if I can. Wyman Memorial High School. I was fortunate enough to go there in my freshman year before we built a new high school. And uh, 1958. And uh, in those days, they had an initiation. I think they called it initiation, right? For the freshmen, I believe the juniors were the ones that did it. Anyway, each person in the class, the freshman class, had to be somebody, like a movie star or something. Well, being the shortest in my class, including the girls, 
I was had I had to be John Wayne. <laughs> and this went on for a week. This is a week a week initiation. So the next thing I know, I've got a pair of stilts that I'm supposed to walk on. And um, like I say, one after a week, if a junior caught you, uh, caught me, not on my stilts, boy, you're in big trouble. You had to clean the stairs. No, I don't think any of you probably remember the old high school, but the stairs went up on both sides. They'd make you clean them with a toothbrush. You, they, all, they had all kinds of disciplinary action if you didn't do what you were supposed to do. On Friday night, they had the, the end of this thing, and it was a show that the juniors... I don't know how the principal and the teachers even let you get away with half of this stuff. I can remember three of my buddies on stage in diapers eating, <laughs> eating oatmeal. <laughs> right? And, and, and again, I'm, we're, we're all saying, no, the, the, the principal and the teachers won't let them hurt us or bother. Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't really fun. <laughs> it was probably fun for you, yeah. But the thing I was going to say was, that was 1958, and then 1959, spring, and that's when they're building the new high school, which is now the, the junior the junior side. Because we're all waiting, because we're going to be juniors in two years, and then we'll have some revenge. Well, wouldn't you know that when we moved to the new high school, no more initiation. <laughs> but those are the things that happen in good old Lyme Memorial High School, and, and I still am so happy that Lebanon has a K through 12 because we've made lifelong friends and so many little towns you have to go to Ram or to Bacon or somewhere, NFA, uh, which are wonderful schools, but I think they lose some of that camaraderie and when you go from K right through 12. So Judy, just so you know, there's no statute of limitations on tractor theft. So. <laughs> Wonderful stories. This, I thought when I heard about this that this was going to be special, but this is amazing. It, it's, like, it's like one big family in front of a fireplace. This is just awesome. The story I want to tell is... Come on up. Is, uh, it's of a perception of a child and how, as time goes by, uh, things change. There was this farmhouse that's on one, Route 163, which is called Basra Street in Basra. As a child, as I rode by on my bicycle, it would be a scary place to be. And one night, I was at a local farm and uh, a, a family that we were very friendly with, and I ended up staying there a little later than I should have. I had a paper out in those days where you had those two baskets that were on your bicycle in the back. You remember those? And I was lucky enough and I say lucky enough, to find two of the larger size Coke bottles that were worth five cents a piece, as opposed to the two-cent bottles that was the norm. And I had one in each basket, and I was pedaling by this place furiously to get by quickly so that I wouldn't have to deal with the things that were in that house. <laughs> Nothing, really, but, of course, perceptually, in my mind, it was incredibly uh, uh, hazardous to be going by this place. And I was focused so badly on looking at this house as I was pedaling by, I went off the edge of the road, tipped over on my bicycle, spilled over, and both bottles broke. <laughs> and the woman that was in the house there came out, helped me, Mrs. Johnson, her name was, and uh, she 
refreshed me with the 10 cents that I lost for the 5 cents for each bottles and, and set me on my way. But what the irony of it is, is this whole story is, is that that particular house that I was so afraid of in those days is now the Maples Farm Park in Basra, Connecticut, which is the site of the flea market and the uh, farmer's market. So I, I stand there in the parking lot sometimes and I look at that now as an adult and think of the horrors that I dealt with <laughs> as a child and what it has become. So there's my two cents from <laughs> South Basra, South Lebanon. <laughs> oh, this, this is great. Okay, who's next? Uh, Rick, come on. As time goes on, and I've gotten more involved with the Historical Society, I find out about the resources and the assets in people in Lebanon, and I'm sure it's true in Colombia as well, is absolutely phenomenal. I'll just use an example, and I won't use their names, but one of the residents in Lebanon has patents on the spacesuit. One of the residents in Lebanon worked on the Saturn V rocket. If you saw these guys walking down the street, it's, you know, farming town. They're, you know, they're, they're old-time Lebanon farmers. They're not. It's just absolutely incredible. Anyway, living down on Gear Road, 1978, about September, as I recall, I'm out raking my little bitty lawn, leaves, yellow New York City cab drives by my house. <laughs> Nobody in it. I mean, other than the driver. <laughs> Google cars weren't here yet, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, two minutes later, it's coming back down the road. Two minutes later, it's going back up the road. And I don't remember if it was twice or three times, but eventually the driver stops, sees me outside, and says, I can't find this address. Do you know this person? I, I said, no, but what I will do is I will go in the house, call that, look it up in the phone book, <laughs> call the individual and have him come down here. So, you know, rotary phone in the kitchen, you know, 642, whatever, found his name. He answers, and I said, there's a guy in a yellow New York City cab. He's trying to find where you live. He's got something to deliver to you. He says, oh, good, I've been waiting for that. He comes down. Now, does anybody know what a spectrometer is? Neither do I, but he was, like, emotional over this thing. I've been waiting for this. I need it by Tuesday. Well, the individual is Tom DeMuhala, if anybody knows that name. Tom DeMuhala needed that because he was on the team going to Turin, Italy, to do the Shroud of Turin analysis now, if you saw him walking down the street, you'd say, you know, Lebanon farmer. He is a world-renowned nuclear physicist living in my backyard at the time, right? <laughs> world-renowned, you know? And the spectrometer was on loan to him from Los Alamos Labs. So it just it reinforces that you don't know who everybody is that's walking by. You don't know their story. But there is a good one behind everybody. So that's it. That's Apparently, being a farmer in Lebanon makes you smart. <laughs> Very. Okay, who's next? Hi, Suzanne, come on. This has to 
to do with what um, Rick just said about not living in Lebanon very long. We've only been here 30 years. And, um, but when we first moved here, within two years, they were talking about building the new high school, and I went to a meeting trying to be involved as a teacher. And I was sitting next to someone, and I just said to them, how long have you lived in Lebanon? And they said, 17 years. And I said, oh, wow, you must really feel like you're a part of the community. And she said, oh, no. She said, you have to have someone buried in a local cemetery. <laughs> and not recently. <laughs> That's sort of the Connecticut story, isn't it? <laughs> All right. Tell me your name. I got one more story about Tom DiMahala. He was the father of one of the scouts in my troop. We went on a canoe trip. I knew his background, and he came with us in the canoe, started up at Willington. He was the first one to dump out and go into the drink. <laughs> <clears throat> a few years ago, I was privileged to attend the Nash Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Uh, it takes place every October, and they shut down the town for vehicles, and they build five circus tents, each of which will hold 6,000 spectators, and they invite storytellers from around the English-speaking world, and the tourists flock in and binge on stories. This is a short story that was told at the National Storytelling. It's called The Walking Catfish. I grew up in a small town in Alabama, there were only a few things to do in the summertime. You could either hoe corn or go fishing. I tried to go fishing a lot. <laughs> One day down at the river, the catfish were biting so quick, I didn't have time to string them up. I just threw them up on the banking. When they finally stopped biting, I went to string them up, and there was one old geezer who was floundering around and still wheezing. I took him on home to clean him, and that old geezer was still breathing. As I looked at him, I had, a, I had a thought. So I dropped him in a bucket of water. The next day, I left him out of the water for an hour. The day after that, I left him out for two hours. Then the next day, four hours. The following day, for eight hours. And finally, I left him out all the time. As I looked at him, I thought, he'll make a good pet. <laughs> so I named him Homer. So I tried to tie a string around Homer and I started to teach him how to follow me around the yard. And he got up on his fins and his horns and he wallowed along and he kind of looked like he was walking. And pretty soon he got the idea and he followed me along without the string. So that's how it went the rest of the summer. Wherever I went, Homer would follow along. I kind of got a little famous for having a walking catfish. In the fall, it came time for school, so I packed up my lunch pail and started down the road. And sure enough, Homer followed me along, and I yelled at him, go back, Homer, this is, this is no school for fish. <laughs> but he wouldn't listen, so I chunked rocks at him, but still he followed me. As I got to the old bridge in front of the school, I raced across and ran up to the schoolhouse door. I stopped and looked around, and Homer was not to be seen. So I got a little curious, and I walked back to the bridge. And out in the middle, there was a rotten board with a hole in the middle. 
So I looked down the hole, and there was Homer. That fool fish had fallen in and drowned. <laughs> get your whipped cream ready. <laughs> That's great. Poor old Homer. All right, this is no time for shyness. Come on up. From the Lyman Junior Class of 1958. Everybody's bringing back so many memories. But what I was really thinking about was water. My parents bought the Briggs Farm on Briggs Road in 1950. I was nine, my sister was eight, and we were excited because we were going to learn all about farming and do all these great things. Well, the first thing that happened is mundane routine. Throw down the silage from the silo, put it in bushel baskets, give it to each cow, grain and all this kind of stuff. Fine, we wanted to learn how to milk. That took a while later, but my dad said, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. So don't learn if you don't want to do it forever. We were too stupid to say no. <laughs> but the uh, thing I was thinking about was water. We had a giant aluminum tub overhead up on some bracing. And uh, one of our jobs after school was to start the pump to fill up the tub to water all the cows. The cows drink out of a bowl that had a lever. They'd put their nose on and push it down, and the water would come down, gravity-fed from this tub. Plus, you have to clean out that hay that they drop in there, otherwise the lever won't go down and they can't drink, and all hell breaks loose, you know. So we had all these little chores to do when we were 9 and 10, 9 and 8, and it got, we finally learned to milk and milked for years, and it was our own fault. <laughs> uh, running that water, you had to keep your ear on it, and you could tell by the sound how full it was getting. If it ran over, it would go into the mangers, ruin the silage, ruin the grain, ruin the hay, ruin my dad's temper. <laughs> we would try to pay attention, but we're also cleaning out the gutters, putting the manure in a wheelbarrow, wheeling up a plank, dumping it into the manure spreader, uh, getting hay, you name it. We were doing it. And Every now and then, we'd miss hearing the right signal. The water would overflow, ruin everything in several cows' mangers. Okay, well, finally my dad said, if it runs over three times, you're going to bed after supper every night for a week. No homework, no TV, which we had just gotten, and so that was a miracle. No nothing, no friends, no visit. You're going right to bed. So I thought, kind of, you know, it's always going to run over three times. Eventually, it'll get to be three. So I said, how about if it's three times in a month? And he thought, thought for a while, and this was, I, in retrospect, very generous of him. He said yes. And I thought this was my first negotiating win of anything. <laughs> I, was, I was so proud of myself at nine. Um, we had a lot of months with one, we had a lot of months with two, and occasionally three. But it was a lot easier to get away from the punishment if you had a month to reset the clock. So that was our big deal with water and cows.
You know, we got we have a generation of kids growing up, and they're telling their stories on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. It's not going to be the same. This is really wonderful. Bell, we're waiting. Whoops, come on. All right. I was a lot younger than my sister, by five and a half years younger. But she was in the, uh, a, uh, the teenage group, high school group, with his father, Jasper, and Boodle Williams. There you go. And a whole lot of other teenagers in Columbia. And on Halloween, they usually had a good time going out and doing things. Uh, one of the things they did that I was always so amused about, they took the clothesline off a house that was very near the center, and they wrapped the clothesline around the whole house and all the doors so that <laughs> nobody could open <laughs> They had a teenage party uh, at the town hall, and uh, I went with my father down to take my sister, and this fellow comes down the stairs, and he had on a skeleton costume, and nearly scared me to death. And years later, he apologized. He said, I know how I scared you. <laughs> <laughs> but to go back, way back, the uh, 1888 blizzard, there was my husband's grandparents got married at the time of the blizzard. They lived on Post Hill in Columbia, but they always went to the Hebrew Congregational Church. That was closer to Columbia. And uh, they had to use an oxen, a pair of oxen and a sled, sleigh type thing to get to the church. Horace W. Porter was the best man. And he lived in East Hampton. And he walked on snowshoes from East Hampton to Hebron Center for the wedding. My grandfather, who lived on 87, was first select man at that time. And he told the story that uh, he looked out, and one of the other selectmen that lived up the road from him had a 10-foot pole, and he was coming down the road, and he would use the pole to climb up and get out of the snow to come down. <laughs> so they decided that everybody in town was to dig out the road in front of their houses, and that's how they cleared the roads. And that's all I put there. <laughs> wow, the blizzard of 1888. What a story. I remember it well. <laughs> Real quickly, I, had a, I, I found out a great family story as a historian. I was in the state archives. I was looking through uh, papers about Columbia, and I found some WPA interviews. They were done during the Depression, and they sent a social worker, a sociologist or something, into Columbia to interview the young people of the town to see what their ambitions were for the future. I, don't, I, I think they were trying to figure out what the effect of the Depression had been on young people. I don't know what it was about, but they record. I actually should get this to the Historical Society because I know there's a Zegda 
in, yeah, there are a lot of, lot of names I know. Anyway, I'm looking down, reading these things, thinking this is fascinating. And the comments are very, you can tell the person is very opinionated. It's like, oh, doesn't seem very happy, won't go very far in life. You know, these are their comments. Well, when they get to my father, I see my father's name there, Jasper Woodward. And I'm like, oh, this is Jasper as a boy. You know, he's 17. I said, Jasper's only ambition in life is music and girls. He can't get enough of both. <laughs> so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I guess. Okay, who, who's next? Come on, these it's too good to stop. Tell me your name. Um, Nancy. Well, I've lived in both Lebanon and Columbia. I'm a relative newcomer as well. I've only lived in Erie since 1979. Okay. At the time this story took place, I was living in the, uh, the old farmhouse um, down the hill from what's now the Lebanon Junior High. It used to be it used to be a like like, like a health food store. I'm for, forgetting the name of the people. Cato's owned it at one time in Lebanon, right on Route 207. I was on North Street off of. Route 207 in Lebanon, there was a Himmelstein farm. People remember that? Well, it always looked like it was falling apart. The house wasn't painted or anything, and it was kind of odd. And I, was, I went out for a bicycle ride with my daughter. I think she was five or six or seven years old, something like that. And I always thought the house was kind of weird. But there was a, there was a dirt road that went down past the Himmelstein farm. So... We were riding along to a seven. We went down the road, and like she, she fell off her, her bike and like banged up her knee, and she was like all upset. And I thought, well, could we possibly ride back to the house? No, she's too upset. So the only thing I could do was go go in the Himmelstein's yard, and like there was stuff all over the place, and it looked like somebody was home on the second floor. So I climbed up these rickety-looking steps, and I was like, didn't know what to expect. And I, and I knocked on the door, and this um, Mr. Himmelstein opened the door, and he, he let me in. He, I, I saw my daughter fell off her bike, and yada, yada, I went in. And he turned out to be the nicest man. I was so afraid of the house, you know, because it, it looked so spooky, and it was looked like it was falling apart and had never been painted. And there were, like, stacks of newspapers piled in the room. I guess he never threw anything away, and he was boiling something on the stove, but... He let me use my phone, and I called my husband to come and pick up my daughter. And it was so nice, and I was really surprised that some of the people, you think like they're like really weird and scary, but they turn out to be very nice. And I, and I heard later how there were a group of like people from Germany that had come over, um, I guess, what, right after World War II, perhaps, or maybe even before, and... People were suspicious of them because they might be spies or something, but they turned out to be the nicest people. So I'm always surprised by, you know, some of my neighbors because, as you said, they looked like maybe ordinary people, but they all had stories. Boy, there's That's a lot it. of us. Yeah. Thank you. So what two things have we learned for sure tonight? A... There are some really spooky houses in this area. 
and B, it's a really dangerous place to ride a bicycle, right? <laughs> Who's going to be our last storyteller? Ed. <laughs> what? You'll be my last story of the night. It's perfect. Day, right Come on. Some people will recognize uh, who wrote this, but I think we should. I just wanted to read it tonight, seeing that we've got Veterans Day coming along, and uh, this was written by a wonderful friend of ours. And it goes, we stand and um, scan the horizon, watching for planes that fly. We must keep constantly searching, for some fly very high. We all know what could happen if we should miss one or two. We know the damage and havoc that could be wrought by only a few. But as spotters, we know our duty is to report every plane that we see. Thus going our part, doing our part in the effort of our country for victory. Although we aren't in the front lines, in the thickest of the fray, we're doing a job that must be done 24 hours a day. We care not for fame or glory. We don't want any of it. But we will go on from day to day, faithfully doing our bit. This war... Uh, wouldn't be won if we all sit home and stew, fret, and fear, but it will be won if everyone will get out and volunteer. If you think that you're overdoing going on duty a couple of hours, just stop and think for a moment what could happen to these homes of ours. Think, too, of the boys that are giving so much more than we're called to do. They're fighting and suffering and dying that you and I might live. I want to tell you all right now, we've a job to do right here. If you haven't already done so, get busy and volunteer. And this poem was written by Janice Fellacy in 1938 when she was in Lyman High School. And with Veterans Day coming up, I thought that was kind of That's Well, I can't thank you enough for one of the nicest evenings I have had the pleasure of listening to in ages. It's just terrific. I hope this is the start of many, many nights like this here in Columbia, all around the state. This, this is how communities are built. Thank you so much. Donna, Alicia, Rick, awesome. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank the Columbia and Lebanon Historical Societies, Andrea Stannard, Rick Kane, Ed Tolman, Bell Robinson, and all the amazing storytellers who made Soup and Stories Night so very interesting. And keep an ear out for Elizabeth Norman's special Christmas story in the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg. You can download all our podcasts at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.org or subscribe on Grading the Nutmeg on iTunes. And to give a gift subscription to Connecticut Explored Magazine or to order your own, visit ctexplored.org. I'm Walt Woodward, wishing you and yours a wonderful holiday season from all of us at Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.